Well, good morning and welcome again to St. Paul's. We're so glad that you're here or joining us online. As we begin, I invite you to pray with me. Heavenly Father, I pray that you drown this place in your spirit now, that the words that are spoken and the words that are heard may carry your living word, your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. We ask it in his name. Amen. So last week, Jenny started her sermon by asking us to do some mental math, and I thought I'd double down this week and start this week with a quiz. You ready? Question one. You're going to be graded at the door. In 2018, this is pre-pandemic, what percentage of Canadian tax filers reported at least one charitable donation? There's the options. 19.4 to 54.2%. What's your guess? I'm I'm not looking for verbal responses. I know this is an Anglican church. You can stay seated and quiet the way we like it. That's fine. All right. Also in 2018, what percentage of income did Canadians give to charity? What percentage of total income did Canadians give to charity? The options range from half a percent to almost 10%. Last question. What's the most generous income bracket? This question uses data from the U.S. because I couldn't find the right data from Canada, but it gives us an idea. Basically, so when people give money, which income bracket gave the highest percentage of their income to charity? What do you think? All right. So we're going to come back to those questions in a bit and reveal the answers, the big reveal. Today is the fourth week of a five-week teaching series about how to cultivate a rhythm of life a set of five ancient spiritual practices or habits that have guided Christians for centuries. And if you are getting sick of hearing five ancient spiritual practices or habits that have guided Christians for centuries, excellent. That means it is getting through. Which we are laying out as a vision for how to live the life of faith at St. Paul's. We started with two habits that are overtly spiritual, regular public worship and prayer and study. And then last week, Jenny did a pivot to service how we give ourselves for the sake of our neighbors, showing us how an action that doesn't have to look spiritual is actually driven by the love that comes from experiencing God's forgiveness. Next week, we're going to conclude by looking at faithful living, what it means to make your life into a 24-7 witness to Jesus. But this week, we're talking about generosity, which means this is a sermon about money, which means I want to curl up and die. Um, But here we all are. The danger in a sermon about generosity and money is that it turns into a lecture about what you all ought to be doing, and in fact, that's a risk with this whole Rhythm of Life series, isn't it? Like, it could come across as if we're laying out this rule, that set of rules that you all ought to follow, but I really hope it's not coming across that way, because that's not what we're intending with this. This is less about rules to follow than it is about making your faith a practical endeavor, a set of Uh, Not just something we think about, but something we live, a set of habits and practices that can shape you into a certain kind of person, a a follower of Jesus Christ through and through. The rhythm of life, it's not about what you ought to do, but a way to think about who you are and be intentional about that, or at least who you might want to be. A recent study by the Christian polling firm Barna showed that the main reason that people said they give money to causes to others was, I give because of who I am. Far more important than who was asking or how they were asked or what the cause was, was who givers understood themselves to be. So generosity is really less about 
what we ought to do than about who we are, and especially who we understand ourselves to be in relationship to Jesus. So that's what we're going to look at today, why generosity is an essential spiritual discipline, and how and why it is that the practice of that discipline will transform you spiritually. So if generosity giving is about who we are, let's check out those questions again and look at who we are, just a baseline. According to Statistics Canada, what percentage of Canadian taxpayers gave to charity in 2018? 19.4%. That figure has been in steady decline over the last 10 years. In 2008, it was 24.1%. Obviously, tax figures present a limited picture. There's plenty of generosity that doesn't get a tax receipt, right? Of course but it gives us an idea. Second question, what percentage of income did Canadians give away in 2018? 0.54%, half a percent. So if you don't like mental math, that means for every $100 of Canadian income, 54 cents was given to charity. Interestingly, the second option there, 1.97% is the rate of giving in the United States roughly four times as much as Canada, though Canada has a higher percentage of people who give. Canadians gave nearly $10 billion to charity in 2018. If we gave at the same rate as Americans, it would mean an increase of $26 billion to the Canadian charitable sector. Now, obviously, there's different tax situations, different social structures. I'm not making judgments here. I'm just noticing. Third, and the most important question for our purposes today, what's the most generous income bracket? What income bracket gives away the highest percentage of its money? It's those who make the least. This is in the US, but it still gives us an idea. You can see here it's the least well-off who give the most by a significant margin. Another report I looked at broke it down further and showed that people who earn less than $15,000 US on average give away 13% of their income. 13%. Unparalleled. So as we pivot here to the scripture lesson, the question I want us to have in mind is why the people who can afford it the least tend to give the most. According to that Barna study, the reason people give is because of who they are. That's their words. So why does having less seem to make you give more on average? Okay, we're dealing with statistics here. It's kind of weird, isn't it, actually, when you think about the scripture lesson that Henry just read for us, to see this empirical data about income and generosity in the 21st century, and then to hear an illustration of an identical phenomenon fully 2,000 years ago in the Bible. It's almost like the Bible's onto something about human nature. Like the picture of giving that we see in 21st century tax data, it's the same thing that Jesus observes when he watches the wealthy give large sums, and the poor widow giving her two pennies. Our reading this morning takes place when Jesus has come to Jerusalem, the heart of political and religious life for the Jewish people. And he's come to the temple, which is the heart of the heart. And he's going to die on the cross in a matter of days. Our reading tells a relatively straightforward story in two parts. First, uh, Jesus warns his disciples about the scribes. Now, scribes are sort of a cross between theology professors, lawyers, and notaries. They were experts in the Jewish religious law, so they could draft contracts and adjudicate conflicts. And according to Jesus, they were prone to a showy faith, enjoying the social privileges of the religious establishment, all the while they devoured uh, widows' houses. And it's not totally clear from this how they were exploiting widows, but what Jesus wants us to know is that their ostentatious faith didn't line up with a heart for justice. 
That's a penetrating critique for a church like ours, off, uh, occupying such premier real estate with such a public face, and especially so for the clergy. Long prayers, robes, good seats, like you should see me at the 11. It's like, ooh, <laughs> yikes. <laughs> I don't think we devour widows' houses here at St. Paul's, but this is a potent reminder to people at such a visible church that God wants a real faith, not a show of faith. In the second part of the story, Jesus sits down at the treasury to watch people give money to the temple, and he sees rich people giving large amounts and a poor widow giving two pennies. And after a little while, he remarks that the widow has given more than the rich people giving their lavish gifts because they gave out of abundance and she gave out of her poverty. In fact, she gave all she had to live on. Last week, we heard about an unnamed woman who anointed Jesus with an ointment that was worth a year's salary. And today, we're hearing about an unnamed woman who gave away two coins that were worth about 15 minutes of labor at minimum wage. I think this is a wonderful part of Scripture for teaching us about generosity, this passage. And here's why. This passage doesn't actually tell you what to do with your money. It doesn't. There's some idea of what not to do, that showy faith of the scribes, but Jesus watching the treasury is actually deeply ambiguous. He doesn't say that the widow did a good thing or that the rich people did bad things. It's easy to read it that way, but that's not what he says. All he says is she gave more because she gave out of her poverty. She gave her whole livelihood. We don't know if he says it approvingly. Maybe not. He's just finished criticizing religious establishment that takes widows' houses. Is the implication that that's what's happening here? That she's been bamboozled by the ancient televangelists to give away money that she can't afford, hoping for some blessing from God? We don't know. All we can say is she gave more. Which is to say, the moral of the story is that according to Jesus, so if you don't like it, take it up with him, according to Jesus, generosity is relative to our means. In other words, generosity is not a function of the size of your gift, but how much the gift costs you. So to answer our initial question, why does being poor seem to make you, less, make you generous, well, according to Jesus, the poorer you are, the closer you are to generosity, because the less you have. The less you have, the more it hurts to give away. Conversely, if Jeff Bezos, am I, is that how you pronounce his name? I can't ever remember. Second richest man in the world, I can't remember how to pronounce his name. Jeff Bezos, if he gave away 99% of his, if you were able to realize all his assets and gave away 99% of his wealth, he would still have enough money to sustain a person for 10,000 years. It's very hard for him to be generous because no matter how much he gives, he will still be impossibly rich. But none of this answers why, empirically speaking, the poor tend to give more generously. The widow had two pennies. Even one would have represented 50% of her net worth, barring her clothing. Why didn't she hold one back? The thing is this, to be poor is to live a life closer to the edge of need, of desperation. It just is. Which is to say, to be poor is to live a life that's dependent on the generosity of others, of people being good to you. Let me put my own cards on the table. I am thoroughly middle class, and I always have been. 
I've received extraordinary generosity from people throughout my life, but I have never been poor. And that means that generosity of others has been, for me, the difference between okay and great. What it hasn't been is the difference, for me, between eating, and or, eating or going hungry, from sleeping in a bed or sleeping on the street, of heating my house or clothing my kids. And I think that fact makes me less generous because I don't know, like in my bones, the difference generosity can make. Because it's a simple truth that we tend to give others whatever it is that we've first received. You get love, you give love. You get abuse, you often give abuse. You get respect, you give respect. You get generosity, you give generosity. And the more you get, the more you give. This widow lived on the razor's edge of utter destitution. She had no bank account to give her the illusion that she was getting through life on her own strength. Everything for her depended on the generosity of God, and that's why she gave everything. Now we've established that you give because of who you are, right? Well, who we are is we're recipients of God's generosity. In this room, there are people at all different levels of wealth. There are people here who are fabulously wealthy and people who have next to nothing and everyone in between. And all of us have already received the immeasurable generosity of God. That's the fundamental claim of Christianity. That's who God is, a God who for the sake of love gave up everything to become nothing. Jesus, who watched the rich give lavishly and the poor widow give everything, was both of them. The rich and the widow. Because as God, he had the riches of heaven and he gave them up to become a human being, but he doesn't withhold the second coin. Because as a man, he had his life and he gave that up too. He gave up all that he had so that our sins could be forgiven. There's a Coptic Orthodox hymn of praise that says, He took what is ours and gave what is his. He took what is ours and gave what is his. He took the poverty of our sin and he gave us the riches of God. We give what we first receive, right? And we've received God's generosity, which is worth more than we could, anything we could ever acquire in this life. We're talking about eternity here. What profit is there, Jesus says, if you gain the world and lose your soul? So will we who have received infinite generosity offer our finite generosity to others? I said at the beginning that I'd tell you what a discipline of generosity would do for you spiritually. The thing is, God's already been generous with us. He's given us everything, and we can't earn more of his, our, his generosity by our own giving. But it's precisely when we are generous that we understand what God has given us. I will go so far as to say this. If we are not generous with the things of this life, with the gifts of this life, if we hoard the blessings that God has poured out on us, then we cannot truly receive the salvation that he has offered us in Jesus Christ. Because a person who will not give generously shows that they don't truly believe that they have received generosity in the first place. A person who will not give generously does not truly believe that they've received God's generosity in the first place. Conversely, the more generous we are, the more we will reap the spiritual reward of the riches of God's grace that have been poured out on us and the treasures of heaven make Elon Musk's 200 billion look like two copper pennies. 
how do you practice generosity? You give stuff away. <laughs> it's not rocket science. To whom? Well, the church in part. It feels weird to say it. I hate this, but I believe it, and our family does it, so I'm going to say it. I've heard Jenny praise the previous rector here, Barry Parker, because he oversaw the renovation that gave us this incredible vessel for gospel witness in Toronto. And then he led the charge to pay off the debt so that the congregation didn't just pass the bill to those who came next, us. What an incredible gift. And a lot of you gave to make that happen. Thank you. Thank you. We don't carry any debt here except the debt of love. The debt to use a facility we've inherited to share the good news of Jesus with others, to serve Jesus and others, that's what we owe. So members of the church give to the church because they have skin in the game. The pandemic hit our rental income hard. We've got a living ministry here. There are, there are 150% as many people here this Sunday as there were a year ago. We've got a living ministry here. We've passed a budget for a growing church. And if you already give, thank you. Bishop Jenny's asked us all to try to increase our support by 5%. Would you consider that? And if you don't give yet, consider starting. Preauthorized giving is a great way to do it, right? Money is practical. I think it's smart to build generosity into your budget. Don't leave it up to how you feel a given month. You can sign up for automatic monthly gifts at the Rhythm of Life table after the service, whether it's a dollar or a thousand dollars. It's a privilege to give. But don't let us devour your house either because Jesus doesn't want that. And the church is not the only thing worth giving to. And Christian generosity should go out just as much as it should come in. So our family, we budget a percentage of income that goes monthly to the church and a percentage that goes to other things that we think are important. That's how we do it. You should find your own way. Remember, you don't have to be rich to give. That's not the point. Everyone has something to give. Everyone has the dignity of a giver. As to how much, there's no one answer, and there's no one standard. Like, take tithing, a biblically attested practice of giving 10%. For lots of people, 10% of their income is a pretty good goal. Inflation's sort of showing us month to month what 10% feels like. It's rough. But if tithing means that you can't feed your kids or buy your medicine, hear me really clearly, do not tithe. And if you're doing well in the world, tithing probably represents the floor of your giving rather than your ceiling. But Tyler, should I tithe pre or post-tax? I don't know. You can figure it out. I'm a theologian. I'm not a financial advisor. I play one on TV. I don't really play one on TV. I just wanted to say that. I don't know what percentage of your income you should give. I just know that we've received everything from God and that a people who have received everything from God will give generously because a generous soul is a soul that sings.